Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. So glad to be here with you this evening. Um, I'm very happy to present to you another book author, which we do every, seems like every couple of weeks, we've got another book uh, to focus on on the show. And tonight is quite a book. Uh, most books take a, balance, a somewhat balanced perspective on whichever topic they are going to be going into. They, they, they provide a, a variety of, of voices and perspectives. And tonight's book, uh, the author told me he intentionally wanted to take a voice, uh, assume a voice uh, much like a pamphlet might be written that would present his ideas as forcefully as he could. And the book is called Scorched Earth. This is by uh, a Columbia professor named Jonathan Crary. The, the full book title is Scorched Earth, Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World. And I really appreciated this book. <laughs> uh, as forceful as it was, actually, I appreciated the, the, the uh, forceful uh, language that presented a, uh, I mean, I want to say it's an overridingly negative view of the effects of the internet and the internet economy on all of us. But I found myself underlining sentence after sentence in this book, thinking to myself, it's not just me who sounds like this. <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, Jonathan Crary has written a number of books. And as you'll hear in our interview, this book, Scorched Earth, is a sort of a follow-up to a previous book a few years ago called 24-7 that he wrote. And uh, he's, he's done the research, and he has had these thoughts developing for years, and they're very much in parallel with the kinds of things that I think and often say and sometimes shout into this microphone here. If you listen to last week's show, boy, I got a little animated at the end, didn't I? Um, but I feel strongly about the, the stakes uh, that we face, the stakes that are on the table that uh, are going to determine our future and the future of the next generation or two based on the decisions of a very small group of incredibly powerful people on the West Coast of the United States and their vassal uh, investors and in some cases, lawmakers who are doing their bidding. Go back and listen to last week's episode to, to get the uh, congressional take on what's happening. But the, what Jonathan Crary does in Scorched Earth is he steps back and looks at the whole system and says, what are all of the uh, complex outcomes due to this entangled process, the internet and financialization and the carbon footprint of all of these processors and the resulting um, impact of climate change and the, the uh, widening gap of, of polarization, the, the widening wealth inequality, all of these different impacts um, are caused in part by the rise of the internet and, and uh, all digital devices. 
and so let me let me play this interview. Um, you'll so I can stop giving the intro to the interview, and we can hear from Jonathan Crary himself talk about his ideas. And then I, I believe we're going to have a little bit of time after the interview where I can respond to maybe some of the comments on the comment board or uh, possibly have some time to walk you through a couple of news stories in recent weeks that fit right into the themes that Crary is writing about in this book, Scorched Earth. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. If you're listening to an archive or a podcast version of the show, you can go to the one-page website for the show. It's called tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist link from the June 27, 2022 show, and you'll see the comments that we had this wonderful evening. Now let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Jonathan Crary, author of Scorched Earth, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Jonathan Crary, welcome to Tectonic. Great to be here. Thanks for joining me. You're a professor of modern art and history at Columbia, and your new book is Scorched Earth, Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World. This is a provocative and rather intense set of three essays arguing that the digital age is going to be disastrous to all of us unless we make some drastic changes. I thought the first sentence of the book is a good summary of, of where you head. Here's how it goes. If there is to be a livable and shared future on our planet, it will be a future offline, uncoupled from the world-destroying systems and operations of 24-7 capitalism. Your argument goes from there, at least in the first essay. So just to start us off, can you say a little bit about why you think the world needs such an urgent wake-up call right now? Well, I, in some ways, this book is a continuation of something that I wrote a number of years ago, 24-7. Um, so it, it very much continues some of, the th- some of the same themes of that book in which I was describing a nonstop 24-7 world of consumption, production, circulation, transportation, you know, just, it, and what I'm really addressing now are the consequences of a world that is never switched off. So the the titles, I go from 24-7, what are the consequences of a 24-7 world? It's a scorched earth. And I I just wanted to clarify that I'm talking, obviously it's, it's referencing environmental and climate change issues and developments. But what I insist on in, in different parts of the book is that a scorched earth is also what happens to a social world and what happens specifically to an interhuman world. So that I, I, I don't think it's possible to separate environmental damage and um, deterioration from what's happening to communities and a whole range of intersocial phenomena. Well, let me give listeners a couple of examples the focus of the book is the internet and technology and its effects on all of us. Although, as you say, you do get into environmental degradation as well. But the internet's really a focus, especially in the first essay. And here's one of my favorite sentences in the book, and it comes right at the beginning. You write, the internet complex is now the comprehensive global apparatus for the dissolution of society. 
wow, that's why we built the internet, to dissolve society. Around the same point in the essay, you write about one of the major effects of the internet. Here's what you write. The internet's key functions include the disabling of memory, not ending history, but rendering it unreal and incomprehensible. And then finally, I think this comes from the second essay. I wanted to read this barn burner of a sentence. One of the foremost achievements of the so-called knowledge economy is the mass production of ignorance, stupidity, and hatefulness. (laughs) There's not a lot of compromise in language talking about dissolution of society and, and mass production of stupidity. Well, I, it's, I, I more or less finished this book just as the pandemic was starting. And um, for a couple of months, I thought that I was going to try to integrate some of what was happening to the use of remote technology during that period. But I didn't do it. Um, so in a certain way, the book it's, it's goes up to a historical moment of about two years ago. Um, and I must say that things that have happened, especially in the past year, kind of amplify, I have, and it, far from making any retraction of that statement about ignorance and hatefulness, I, I almost feel that could be amped up um, in terms of how we've seen the right wing, the kind of the psychotic right wing it, it begin to go mainstream in this country. Um, and then of just the, not that it's a new phenomenon, but it seems to be accelerating and intensifying of, of, the, of the mass shootings that are taking place on top of the police violence of, of, of two summers ago. One of the things that I had in mind is that I was not writing this book for a general audience, but I was writing it for an audience of people who are already convinced of the need and the, in, in a sense, the necessity of moving to some kind of low growth or no growth, uh, you know, eventually post-capitalist economy and and ways of living. What I mean by addressing that demographic, which I don't really have a sense of how large or small it in fact is, but of addressing what I see as a kind of delusion that many people I've talked to share. And that's the assumption that we can move to some type of of significant transformation of the way in which we, we, we produce, we consume, we live and so on but of the, what I consider to be the, the kind of thoughtless, and I, don't, I mean that more in the literal sense of the word, the kind of unreflective um, assumption that the internet and social media are, are simply gonna be there in that transformed world. So for me, for me, there's something fundamentally wrong about that assumption. So that what I'm trying to insist on is that Going back to that first sentence where I, where I said, if there's to be a livable world, it'll be a world offline. We may have a world that is barbarous, that's a kind of continuation of a, of a savagely declining capitalism, where we all still will be on some type of patched together internet. What I'm really insisting on is that we have to see the ways in which the internet is intrinsically part of this terminal world of, of digital capitalism. And that it isn't, it isn't something that can simply be transferred. It's, it's something that depends for its, its subsistence on this intensified global 
network of, of 24 seven consumption and extraction. So that there's, there's a way in which all of the ways in which we use the internet are, are inseparable from the deterioration and collapse of ecosystems and environments. The, the fantasies are the idea that there can be some renewable world of global communications networks. And that's, you know, it's just not there. It's not happening. Yeah, the pitch from the tech companies these days is that, well, we're going to go green. You know, Google announces we're going to launch a new data center that's going to be carbon neutral. See, we're done. So now we can continue our extractive, mm -hmm. exploitative practices. One thing I appreciated in this book is that you very accurately and sharply draw the multiple forces that are conspiring together to create this very urgent problem that you've titled Scorched Earth. You're looking at environmental degradation, forced compliance, the sense of, that we're told, inevitability, that this is just the way things are, so you should go ahead and just get used to it. You get into surveillance. You talk about the lack of memory and understanding of our own history, the atomization of cultures into individuals, thereby foreclosing the possibility of collective action, our own sense of identity being wrapped up into uh, these devices. Actually, let me just read this great quote. This is also from the first essay. Our own disposability is mirrored in our self-defining devices that quickly become useless pieces of digital trash. And later you write about the devices that they, quote, enslave us under the pretext of empowering us. And you write about this kind of colonialism that is being forced on not just indigenous cultures around the world, but even the idea of a national culture has to be subsumed into this global technocratic flattening model of, of infinite accumulation. I'm just trying to give listeners a sense of the multiple threads that you're weaving together. And as you just pointed out, a lot of it comes back to some underlying assumptions of infinite growth that are baked into the present system. Um, you write, with the post-2008 global economy, long-term calculation by powerful interests gave way to short-term forms of enrichment. This is casino capitalism at midnight when the winning players begin to cash in their chips. I thought that was an important phrase there because you're not only pointing to the problems of the underlying financial structure that we've got and the financializing structure, but the moment we're in, Jonathan, does seem to be different from a generation or two ago when you know CEOs would at least make some nominal moves to take care of workers and their families. Now it really does look like the elite with their hands on the levers of power and money really are trying to cash out right now. Mm -hmm. One of the other assumptions that pervades so many of the different spheres of thinking and, and work that I'm involved in is the assumption that current technological arrangements, that it's all here to stay. And I, I use that phrase a number of times in the book in terms of the multiple ways in which we are told that what we're existing within now is is here to stay that it's that it's unchanging and you know we all have variable relationships to that assumption you know uh, i mean i'm sure that on, on one level we all have doubts but in in other ways 
that drumbeat of the idea that the digital world that we inhabit is kind of permanently installed on the planet. It's very hard to get away or get outside of that declaration, so to speak. Um, so part of what I'm doing in the book, the, the disturbance that I'm trying to create is that the digital age is not something that's here indefinitely and that it's dependent upon a relatively precarious armature of economic institutions and arrangements. So that the, there's a kind of myth that the digital age is somehow the same kind of thing as the Bronze Age or, or even the, the steam-powered age of the late 18th and 19th centuries, that there's something far more precarious ultimately about it. Yet we carry with us this assumption that it's permanent and that um, there's there's simply, I mean, to, this is paraphrasing Margaret Thatcher from the 1980s, um, there is no alternative, T-I-N-A. So that's partly, I mean, going back to that idea of, of the destruction of memory, the destruction of a sense of history, that the internet coincided with the whole 1990s triumphalism after the fall of the Soviet Union and just the endless declarations that free market capitalism, I mean, just to use that particular phrase, was here to stay. And in, in a sense, this was part of all of the many so-called end of history discussions and debates, even though very quickly we found out that history hadn't ended. I mean, 9-11, 2001 was a kind of wake up call. So the, I mean, the other thing I just wanted to, to say about the book, and I declare this at the beginning, in that I'm not at all suggesting that what I'm presenting in the book is anything original, that what I saw my project as was to find a, a, a rhetorical strategy for articulating what we all know to some extent, yet we, we may be unsure of whether this is, these intuitions are right or are correct. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm deliberately abandoning the academic vantage point, which I've often taken in, in earlier works of mine. Um, but I'm not, I'm not trying to brand myself here. I'm not trying to come up with some original vocabulary to describe what's happening, that I'm, I'm really trying to articulate something that is, is, is shared. This book is very accessible and it does have familiar points and themes. I mean, any long-term listener to Tectonic is going to recognize pretty much every major theme that you've brought up. With that said, you're filling in some gaps. And while I'll agree that you're not um, revealing to us some giant new insight that no one's thought of, you're putting in connective tissue and making connections that I haven't seen before. Look, even if someone has seen some of these connections before, this is important enough that it bears restating. I mean, it's good to have a book that warns people again about the dangers of where we're headed in this financialized uh, tech space. But one of the things that you did and I really appreciated was you pointed the reader to dozens of other authors who have covered or issued some similar warnings over the years. One of the 20th century authors you bring up a number of times is Lewis Mumford. You've got John Ruskin, uh, Hannah Arendt, Ivan Ilyich, a 21st century author, Vandana Shiva. 
Thomas Pynchon, William Burroughs, Philip K. Dick, J.G. Ballard. I could go on. There are many authors that you're pointing to as, as worthy companions as we continue to explore this. But within that list of authors, I wanted to focus on some of the novelists. I haven't seen anyone else bring up Balzac or Flaubert in mm. tectonic reading before, or Joseph Conrad, for that matter. But you, you make a special point of recommending Flaubert's novel, Sentimental Education, from 1869. Is this something that tectonic listeners need to, to go and check out of the library? It's, it's a pretty harrowing read. I mean, I, it's an extraordinary book. And I've sometimes hesitated to assign it to my students, which I've done. But I somehow feel it's my students are too young. They don't need to, to confront cynicism that's this relentless. And it's cynicism about existence within a world where money trumps. Money and class trump everything. But it's interesting because I part of that larger argument that that right, that I see in some 19th century fiction, you know, is then carried over to the late 20th century, where I have Patty Smith's Free Money as an innocence continuous with some of those insights about the damage to to human relationships and of the difficulty of actually loving another human being within a world that's dominated by that particular va financialized value system. There are some extraordinary sequences in that Flaubert novel. A lot of people take issue with his unredeemed, I mean, his cynicism about political activism, about revolution is something that people have taken issue with in that book. Um, and I, I totally understand that as well. But it's, it's kind of going beyond Balzac in terms of the bleak landscape that it paints of this city at that point in the 19th century. You also mentioned Anthony Trollope as an author to look to. Yeah, I mean, that, I, mean I listed a whole bunch of, I mean, the 19th century, in a sense, the novel is, is inseparable from those experiences of how social relations are being, in a sense, reified and, and financialized. Last year, I read Trollope's book, uh, The Way We Live Now. Yes. Yeah. And it was funny because The Way We Live Now, like any Trollope novel, there's all sorts of characters and threads and subplots and so on. But one of the main stories in that book revolves around a fraudulent startup in San Francisco. <laughs> when would that ever happen again? <laughs> Incredible. I, <that's, laughs> I mean, even then... Um, financial fraud with new technology coming out of San Francisco. It was amazing. Wow. <laughs> but I just wanted to follow Please. up because I'm, I'm glad that you noticed that, that I, it was a calculated decision to present a, 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 a kind of broad range of earlier 20th century and even late 19th century thinkers. In other words, that what we're looking at now is not a completely new set of developments. So that the availability of digital network technology, it's a supplement to already existing arrangements and, and institutions that, you know, depending on one's perspective, go, go pretty far back, especially when some of the earliest insights about the relationship between capitalism and technology and science were beginning to be articulated. 
I really appreciated that aspect of the book where you were bringing up relatively early authors and using their work to illuminate very contemporary problems that we're facing. You're reminding us these are not new problems. The internet is not a brand new entity that's bringing all of this with it. This has been part of the structure all along. On the other hand, you're saying the effects that we're seeing in the environment and wealth inequality and the fraying of social bonds and so on, these are new. We, we have reached a new level of red alert warning in our world that these early thinkers were warning us about, but now it's here. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are halfway through my interview this evening with Jonathan Crary, Columbia professor and author of a new book called Scorched Earth. We are hearing Jonathan talk about how technology is often sold to us as inevitable. There is no alternative, as Thatcher said once or twice, and that's uh, just not true. There are many alternatives to us, uh, available to us, and uh, I appreciate Jonathan Crary writing this book to, to present us with a vision of where we're headed and where we could try to improve. We're going to get into some of the solutions in the second half of the interview. If you want to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. And now the second half of my interview with Jonathan Crary, author of Scorched Earth, here on WFMU Tectonic. You, you referred to the point in the book where I talk about the word scorched and, and why I actually chose that word. And one of the definitions of the word or the verb to scorch something is not to incinerate it, but it's to, it's to burn it or to heat it enough so that the surface is damaged and singed in a way that, in a sense, burns its color off. So there, there, there was a, there's a way in which that word I use in the title um, was was directly informed by that damage to the in, in a sense the skin or to the the delicate surface of of objects and forms um, in a in a living planet. One real world impact of that you point out, of course, is the bleaching of coral reefs, as uh, one example of environmental degradation, but we see the, the loss of natural color there, even as we're surrounded by these ubiquitous screens with synthetic color, uh, and that those, the, the decline of natural color and the rise of synthetic color are related. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, uh, the, the relation between those is the act of scorching. Yeah. Uh, to burn, as you write, to burn a surface to the point that its color and texture are singed and shriveled. And so with this, with this book, Scorched Earth, we see both life forms on Earth being scorched, literally, but also the color, the metaphorical color and texture of human life and society being singed and shriveled and flattened uh, for the purposes of, of profit. Another thing that I really appreciated since I, I have some experience in this area is your treatment of what's called UXD, 
which stands for User Experience Design. Uh, I loved that you were, and this I think is the first book on the show I've had that really dives into user experience design and the perversion of that discipline that tech companies have brought about. You write, this is in the, the last essay, one UXD firm announces that they have fashioned, quote, magical and meaningful payment experiences for shopping websites. <laughs> Most often the goal of UXD is to craft interfaces that are frictionless. But here, you're right, frictionless is a synonym for the absence of reflection, thought, or doubt. Here we go again, Jonathan, with the internet being a machine for widespread stupidity. And <laughs> we can point the finger at some practice of UXD, no? Right. I mean, that was that. that's kind of the opening of that last um, section of the book in which I, I talk in some general ways about biometric technology. But one of the ways in which I was approaching talking about biometrics, which is face recognition, emotion recognition, iris scanning, I mean, there's a whole, whole range of them. But I made clear at a certain point that I mean, it's not that I dismiss concerns, but this wasn't what I'm focusing on in the book. I'm not, I'm not concerned in the book about data mining and about digital surveillance. Not that I'm, I'm minimizing those, but the whole, the whole critique of so-called surveillance capitalism, for me, there's something deficient about that critique because it presumes that the, the underlying arrangements are somehow viable. And it's a kind of reformist critique that if only we could do away with the data mining and the surveillance, that we could somehow get back to the old good internet where we just do whatever we do without people watching us. And I, I, I'm, I'm concerned within the ways in which this whole obsession with digital surveillance, it simply forces us and makes us more more possessive of our own privacy and isolation and protection um, rather than, than, than breaking out of those frameworks. So that what I'm, what I'm concerned about, um, and you've, you've begun to allude to it, is, is what happens to interhuman relationships and connections in a world where the gaze, the face, and the voice become these objects of, of mechanized appropriation. And I, I don't come to any, you know, major kind of conclusions, but I'm, 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 I'm trying to pose the ways in which there's something that's deeply damaging that, that we're going on. I mean, just, you know, the this, this seemingly banal phenomena of listening and responding to robotic voices, you know, whether these are personal assistants and, you know, whatever. But I, I very much believe that the more we naturalize, and in fact, that's probably the wrong word to use, but the, the more we normalize those robotic forms of exchange, the more we lose something that's fundamental to, to who we are. And I'm sure there are people who are going to say, oh, you're exaggerating, that's not really happening. But I, I, I don't think that it's, I don't think I'm exaggerating. And the same way in which the face becomes, in a sense, demeaned or degraded by its increasing appropriation within different networks of identification. That in other words, the face 
you know, it's not just something that ends up in, in databanks, but it's 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 the face assumes a whole set of of meanings that become inhuman. And I hear I'm taking this from a whole range of, of you know thinkers that I admire, that when we talk about the interhuman, that the very basis of what the interhuman is are those those three factors that I just named: the face, the gaze, and the voice. And that is, in a sense, if we don't if we don't hold on to those, um, you know, and I can hear people are going to say, "Oh, you're you're essentializing those." That you know, there have been technologies for centuries that have modified and intervened. And I, but I, I I think we're crossing a threshold where where that kind of dismissal is is less and less possible. Yeah, you write that biometrics furthers the comprehensive habituation of human beings to interfacing with machine systems. There, I thought you were pointing out a really important dimension of this threat, which is that human society is being habituated, that, again, this is here to stay. This is the way things are. And you see facial scans, facial recognition popping up everywhere. Most recently on the show, I covered briefly a new announcement from the New York Mets that now you can go to the stadium and you don't have to hold on to a ticket. Your face is your ticket. Incredible. I hadn't heard this. Yeah. And, and what I said on the show was people may rail against the surveillance against employees and gig workers, which you also talk mm -hmm. about in Scorched Earth. But when they clock out for the day and they're done and they want to go see a baseball game, Maybe can we just leave that sacrosanct and not have the normalization of the surveillance state or the technocratic machine, whatever you want to call it? Can we just leave it out of baseball? No. Uh -huh. Your face. Pay with your face. <laughs> That's a threatening phrase. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of that more comprehensive transformation of just what identity is at this point. Um, right. And how. The, the identity that's, in a, in a sense, compatible with all of these networks and payment systems, in a sense, predominates over what's left over. Before we run out of time, I wanted to bring up one last example in a, in a question having to do with Lewis Mumford, who I've talked about on the show before, 20th century writer and critic, not just about uh, technology. He was at the New Yorker and wrote about architecture and a bunch of different topics. You filled in my understanding about Mumford's history. You wrote that Mumford became disillusioned. And here's what you write. You said Mumford early on had erroneous expectations that there would be what he called a neotechnic era in which social and environmental needs would become priorities. But by the 1960s, Mumford had abandoned this hopeful vision. I hadn't come across that before. So this is something that is relevant to me, going on air week after week, talking about this stuff. And certainly, you put it in scorched earth, it's relevant to you, relevant to your career. When you see the world veering into catastrophes that you and other thinkers have seen miles off and we keep going into this future that you've been warning us against, how do you maintain hope? <laughs> how do you maintain energy 
to keep going? And are you ever tempted to say, well, the heck with it. They're going to, you know, like at the end of the Planet of the Apes, they're, they're going to do it. So why even bother, you know, just rail at the Statue of Liberty? Sorry if that's a spoiler for anybody. But how do you, how do you keep going, Jonathan? Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I, I hope is at least implicit um, and maybe in a few parts of the book is, is explicit is that the, in a sense, the only option that we really have is to begin to, to live indifferent, to live in a sense outside of the imperatives that in a sense are, are, are declared to be imperative or, or, uh, or, or necessary. I briefly talk about some of the early 20th century socialists in Europe, Central Europe, um, and I, I uh, cite the work of Gustav Landauer, um, kind of a, an interesting idiosyncratic figure in, in, in German, uh, German revolution after uh, World War I. But he talked about socialism as a, a future that needed to be prefigured in the present. Then, um, in a sense, we, we live now in the ways that we want to, in a sense, characterize or, or be, be part of a future. And, you know, whether that future is totally out of reach, is, for me, it's not, it's not relevant. But in other words, the only choice that we have is to, begin to, is to begin to set up some connections with the people we love, the people that we're closest to, that in some way refuse what's declared to be um, unrefusable. So, I mean, part of what I'm doing in the book is, is this insistence that the only choice that we really have are, are forms of what I refer to as radical refusal. And ever since the 90s, I mean, you know, I, I've talked about this in other books of just the, the long demolition, the long eradication of everything that was fundamental about the 1960s. Um, in a political sense, um, that's that's so much of what's happened over the last forty to fifty years, have been about installation of measures to prevent the kinds of radical forms of consciousness that took place in this from from coming back or from from appearing in in new forms of un, appearing in unprecedented forms. So that's part of the whole here to stay. There's no alternative. And, um, you know, that, that radical refusal, it's about, it's about negation. And it's about that there's something that's radical about negating. And, and in a sense, the, the idea of a blank slate in terms of how we think of, of the present. I mean, it may be there are things we want to hang on to, there are things, but it's, it's, it's part of a process. Um, so I don't, I don't, what I'm doing in this book, it's part of a larger process in which that gesture I mean, even even if that's all it is at this point, of realizing that's the that's the one thing we we have, is that possibility of refusal, but also revolt. Um, and you know, we're living in a time when the very idea of revolt is just considered foolish. It's considered you know what nostalgic or whatever. And I I, I think the more and more people who, who who refuse that kind of academic elitist banality, we will be on the road to, to something that at least that at least is driven by hope rather than by pessimism or despair. And just let me read off some of your solutions because listeners are going to be wondering. Well, I don't want to, I, I, I'm pretty insistent. Those are, 
those are what I see. They're not mine. They're 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 what I see as kind of inevitable. I mean, there's just there's so there's a way in which what I list there is um it's a kind of common ground of of what. <laughs> but please, I, I just wanted to sure. The, these are solutions from the the last couple of pages of the book that you're listing, the expansion of local food production making available basic health care, protection of clean water supplies, remaking housing stocks, reclaiming of derelict spaces, enlarging a barter economy, and reconceiving the bonds between humans and animals, salvaging what remains of biodiversity, and recovering the spirit of festival and arts. Well, the last one, I think, is well served by WFMU. Um, <laughs> But we have some work to do on some of the other ideas. Well, Jonathan Crary, thanks again for being on Tectonic. And I recommend to listeners pick up a copy of Scorched Earth and enjoy it. Great. Well, thank you for having me. just tuning in you're listening to tectonic on wfmu my name is mark hurst i will be your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show and then i want you to stay tuned to wfmu because spin the globe with ebba is coming up right at the top of the hour hope you will stick around for ebba uh Thanks for sticking around for the interview with Jonathan Crary. And thank you to Jonathan for spending time with us to talk about his new book, Scorched Earth. Uh, This was a polemic that really, uh, I I called it a barn burner, and it really is. It it, uh, pulled no punches in describing exactly how Jonathan feels and what he sees. And by the way, I agree uh, about what's happening in the world due to the internet and all associated digital platforms. So this book, Scorched Earth, Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World, you heard that Jonathan started with uh, questioning this idea that these platforms are inevitable. Well, you just have to accept it. This is the way things are. There is no alternative. He rejects that. And at the end of the interview, you heard Jonathan say that we should try to adopt some forms of what he calls radical refusal. What does it mean to to, uh, carry out radical refusal to these platforms that are presented to us as being inevitable? And yet they are not. There are there are alternatives. And you heard what Jonathan said, at, at, or at what he wrote as I, as I read out, the solutions that he sees. Interestingly enough, he used the word inevitable for these solutions. And maybe he's right. I mean, maybe we do eventually have to come to some consensus around, as he says, local food production and basic health care and clean water. Uh, because what, what is the alternative to beginning 
to really invest in those, those basic human essentials, the essentials for a healthy society. What is our, 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 our alternative is to continue to stay in this exploitative system that is really built for the enrichment of a vanishingly small group of people who the, the ones on the very, very top of this, uh, of this neo-feudal system uh, are, are based on the West Coast of the United States. They're, they're either in Silicon Valley or they're in Seattle. I mean, that's where they have their first homes, I guess. They all have various homes and yachts. Who knows where they are at any one moment? And soon enough, they'll, they'll be on planet Mars. And uh, I wish them a very, very long and happy trip out to Mars. <laughs> but I'm, I'm kidding uh, about our, our um, relationship to that vanishingly small group of people. But getting back to what Jonathan Crary said, the radical refusal results in us embracing positive alternatives. Again, and this is the, this is the list he came up with. Local food production, basic health care, clean water, housing stocks, reclaiming derelict spaces, uh, in, encouraging a barter economy, growing the barter economy, and repairing the bonds between humans and animals and salvaging what is left of biodiversity. And finally, that final item in the list, which I think WFMU is leading the way so, so well, day after day, month after month, is encouraging the spirit of festival and art. Um, and I, I have done past shows on this very topic about the increasingly corporate and flattened landscape in the in the world of of as he call, as Crary calls festival and arts, and the alternative that we have here at WFMU, a freeform non-commercial uh, collection of DJs and hosts who are curating their own uh, passion projects uh, over over the airwaves and over these streams to present to you what they're excited about that is, is totally divorced and divested from the profit motive. Um, not that there's, there's no place at all for a profitable music-oriented institution or, or business out there, but, but we have to have, I'm just, I'm just using FMU as an example, a case in point for all of these other areas, all of these other solutions. Um, reclaiming derelict spaces. We need to do that without totally being beholden to a profit motive that fits into an exploitative system that is lining the pockets of the already obscenely wealthy. Um, healthcare should not be an exclusively profit-oriented enterprise that is, that is about pushing value up into a smaller and smaller group of people and, and, and pushing the externalities out to everyone else. I mean, I could go through each of these and say the same thing. We should not look at the world as an entirely inevitable slide into all of the problems we have based on an, an exclusively profit-oriented system, which is where the, where the internet has, has ended up. As the internet has become fully financialized and the, the alliance between Silicon Valley and Wall Street has been cemented, 
what we see are all of these, these uh, systemic problems that look very similar to the problems we see in healthcare, the problems we see in uh, corporate arts and, and corporate radio, <laughs> uh, the problems we see in real estate and, and the, the decreasing uh, housing stocks that are, that are available to you know, non-billionaires. We could go through each of these. I uh, haven't even gotten into food production in the food system. Go back and listen to the, the, uh, the show not long ago about the obesity crisis and how that ties into the corporate move to put niacin into all of our bread and, 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 uh, and crackers and baked goods. Uh, that's a corporate move. All of these systems are showing the problems of being exclusively profit-oriented this idea of growth at any cost uh, that, that Mark Zuckerberg and the Google founders perfected so well to show us what does it look like when you build an economy around that one idea, growth at any cost. We are only beholden to profit and everybody else can take a hike. We are going to line our own pockets and you can either work with us and be our, 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 our vassal or, or be an exploited gig worker, or we cast you out into the outer darkness where there are no more services because we have sucked up all of the resources, public and private. Uh, Carolyn Chen's book, Work, Pray, Code, that I covered on the show recently uh, with an interview with Carolyn Chen, we, that fits into this as well. That in Silicon Valley itself, the parks are closing, the infrastructure is starting to crumble, and yet, the buses, the private buses that take Google and Facebook employees from San Francisco to the headquarters, those are doing fine. Uh, but the tax base is drying up due to the tax avoidance of these companies that are built for growth at any cost and exclusively devoted to profit that they will then turn over to their major investors, senior leaders, and founders who, by the way, really don't need another billion dollars. I mean, this is just, this is just my opinion. But I mean, once you have $100 billion, uh, do, do we really need to build a system to make these guys 200 billionaires, 300 billionaires? Do we really need to be building a system that is, is shooting at finally delivering the world, the, the world's first trillionaire? Uh, look at what Carolyn Chen, listen to what Carolyn Chen is pointing out in Work, Pray, Code, and it fits exactly with what Jonathan Crary is writing in Scorched Earth, that we are headed in the wrong direction <laughs> in this system. And we are being told that the technology, don't worry, the technology is neutral, it's inevitable, there's no way to change it, you might as well get in line and be compliant with the system. And I simply do not believe a word of that. And more than that, it's not that I disagree, it's that I refuse. And I myself am trying to work out what is my radical refusal going to look like beyond, you know, getting on a microphone every week and, and saying this. Um, I, I, I think that's a question for all of us, not just individually, but as a community. What does a collective radical refusal of these technology finance systems, what does that look like? I don't know the answer, but I appreciate Jonathan Crary uh, writing this book, Scorched Earth, this polemic that, that is raising, as I said, raising a red alert that we are on the wrong path and we cannot simply be 
passive and say, oh, isn't that a shame? We have to pay attention to the, the trajectory, the deadly trajectory that we're on as a society due to the alliance between big tech and their financializing partners. Uh, I could go on, <laughs> but um, if you want to take a look at the book, there are links to the book and Jonathan Crary's previous book, 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep. Those books are both linked, and they're both published by Verso. We love Verso here at Tectonic. Um, they're both published by Verso, and the links are on the playlist. Again, go to wfmu.org, click playlists and comments. If you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and click the playlist for June 27, 2022. And uh, there's also... Uh, a link to a letter from the editor at Verso about Scorched Earth, which gives a little more context and uh, why Verso was so excited to publish this book. And there is a, a, a really good review of the book Scorched Earth by Theory, Culture, and Society. Uh, there's also a, a piece about privacy from the Times, which I am not going to have time to get to, but maybe on a future show. Speaking of future shows, next week is July 4th here in the U.S. It's Independence Day. Happy Independence Day, everybody, for July 4th. Um, I am not going to be live, but I will have a new show for you. It's going to be pre-recorded, and it's going to be a montage of some of my favorite interviews from the third season of Tectonic. They're all going to come from the 2019 to 2020 season, and I hope you enjoy that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then the following week, so in two weeks, that's going to be uh, July 11, station manager Ken Friedman is going to be filling in uh, as guest host, and he's got a great show that he's putting together for you. Uh, I know that you will enjoy that. Uh, everyone always enjoys station manager Ken's tectonic episodes and then i plan to be back live here uh, in studio a the following week which is going to be july 18 and uh, tentatively looking at an interview with ben tarnoff uh who's got a new book out that that fits right in with jonathan crary and and some of the other books that we've had recently on the show uh, please again stay tuned for spin the globe with ebba and uh, keep, keep listening to the greatest radio station of the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, when I'm live, I hope, fingers crossed, in three weeks, back live with you in Studio A. Until then, you know what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And I want to thank Brother Daniel Blumen, once again, for recommending a great outro tune. He's on, by the way, uh, right after Dan, the great Dan Boda with Vocal Fry. He's, uh, Daniel Blumen himself is on at 9 p.m. Eastern for a delicious three-hour show. Hope you listen to him then. And until then, enjoy this song that he recommended. It's called Surveillance System by the band Echoplex. Have a great week, everybody. I'll see you next time.
Stop! 